7.03 on a Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, everybody. It is Halford. It is Bruff. It is Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff in the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Uh, we are in hour two of the program. Dave Tomlinson, newly minted game analyst on Sportsnet for the Vancouver Canucks, is going to join us in just a moment here to kick off Hour 2. Hour 2 of this program is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them. 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. The Halford and Bruff Show is coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. He's back. On Canucks broadcast, he's back on the Halford and Bruff Show. It's Dave Tomlinson now on Sportsnet 650. What up, Dave? How you doing? Hey, good morning, gentlemen. It has been a while since I had to get up early in the morning and look forward to talking hockey. And so in doing it with you guys, it's a great start to the day. DT, what are your thoughts about being back covering the Canucks again? Well, I can't contain the excitement, I'll tell you that. Like. To be honest, you know, through my playing career, I always look forward to when I can finally get back home and then getting into sports broadcasting. I always wanted to cover the Canucks and got the opportunity to color commentary on the radio with uh, Shorty and then Rick Ball and John Abbott and uh, Joey Kimberg here and there. But I, I always wanted to try to make that next step uh, to television. And then when the news came down that John Garrett wasn't going to come back, uh, I was hoping that I'd be a candidate and it all came to fruition. And honestly, like this, I've got to set a higher life goal now because this, this was it. This was the dream job come true. And I'm just really excited to get going. Well, congratulations on that. Uh, I know that has been your dream for a while and, uh, you're going to join the broadcast for a very, um, High stakes season for the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, what are some some of your thoughts about the team heading into the season? Just generally, what are you thinking? Well, you look at the the bones of the team, and they're in a great spot. And I was listening to the segment earlier with you guys, and you know the fact that they've got Pedersen, who's coming off his career year, and you've got uh, you know, kind of the the tenacity of a JT Miller who you know, drags his team into the fight and a newly minted, uh, stealing your phrase there, captain and Quinn Hughes, who is the right choice. And, and it's just a competitive, competitive player. And then Thatcher Demko, when he's on his game is, you know, top five, top seven goaltender in the NHL. So you work around that. And I think that when you come into the season, you look at the challenges that the salary cap presented uh, the last two years with the Canucks and uh, they have to make some hard moves. And uh, it costs them some some uh, draft capital, but I think they've pointed themselves in the right direction. It's going to be a real competitive year for them. Uh, I'm interested to see how this team gels and if they're able to get off to what's everyone talking about, uh, you know, a, a decent start. <laughs> uh, then after that, uh, I think that the, the coaching and Rip talking, just the way that he handles the team. Uh, they'll start to win those games that maybe last season they weren't able to get the full two points. You know, DT, you said your heart was always in British Columbia and your dream has always been to, you know, be on TV covering the Vancouver Canucks. And Halford and I have actually often wondered, like, what would it be like if we had to cover a different team in a different market? Was it was it kind of weird for you in Seattle? Like, 
just going and covering a brand new team. It was obviously a brand new fan base, so that was a different element to it. What was it like covering the Kraken? It was interesting. Uh, I mean, it was an unbelievable opportunity. If, if you're you know, ever going to get the chance to go, quote-unquote, out of market to cover a team, uh, for myself, the fact that it was an expansion team and I would be the first one uh, and, and growing and getting to know the team in the city all at the same time. Obviously, you know the city of Seattle, but not as a hockey market. So you kind of go in there and you hope that everything is the way that it should be from the team that you've been with before. But being as an expansion team, a lot of things are new, you know, not only to the organization and the people there, but uh, to the city. I really enjoyed it because there's almost free reign to – uh, craft how you want the the broadcast to sound, and uh, you're able to you know, make your mark. And so it was it was a unique opportunity. I, uh, the fact that I was close to home made it even better. Uh, on off days, I was able to like, jump in the car and uh, drive the two hours and get back to Vancouver and see my mom, see my kids, that sort of thing. So it didn't really feel like I was that far away, mm-hmm. but it was definitely odd when I do a Canucks game. As the Seattle Kraken color commentator on the radio, because <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew both teams pretty well, and had to make sure that I didn't swap the names when somebody scored. Um, I don't want to sound like a hockey snob here, being up in Canada and Vancouver, where we've had an NHL team for a long time, and hockey is part of our national fabric. Um, was it different calling games for a fan base there, there was going to be a lot of new fans to not just the Kraken, but to the game of hockey. And now you're back in Vancouver where you know that everything you say will be like parsed and you've got a really knowledgeable and maybe a little bit crazy fan base um, listening to your call. Yeah, I found in Seattle, you know, they, they do love their sports. Uh, they love their, their hardworking characters. And so in doing the radio call, you know, you, you have more of an opportunity to just kind of talk things through. And so there's a lot of explaining as things are going along. And I enjoyed it because, as you guys know, hockey's been my life. And so I really enjoyed just to be able to talk about it uh, at any level uh, to anybody. In, in Seattle, they were like a sponge for the, for the knowledge of the game. What I found in Vancouver doing color for the Canucks – uh, right out of the gate, is that you're right. I mean, you could uh, be a little bit more precise with certain things. There's terms that you can use that people would understand. You know, rim the puck around the boards. People know what that means. New hockey fans might not get that. So you'd say rim the puck around the wall, and then you kind of explained it a little bit. It's a delicate dance because you don't want to offend the hardcore hockey fans, and they do have those in Seattle. Uh, but, you know, Together with Everett, I mean, his energy is contagious. So I thought we just we went into the booth each game, making sure that we'd have a fun time and hope that regardless of how the score was, people still wanted to listen because they liked what they were hearing just in general. And uh, lastly, on the Kraken, one of the first games of the season, uh, Brandon Tanev was racing down the ice to throw one of these big hits that he likes to try to blow guys up. And I noticed the crowd started cheering before they hit, like they were anticipating the contact. So, you know, with the football, I, I kind of think that they, they like that sort of thing. And so they, there are some cult heroes uh, for the at least the two years so far for the Seattle Kraken. We're speaking to Canucks TV analyst, new Canucks TV analyst, Dave Tomlinson here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. So, Dave, I know how the gig works. Uh, when you're, you know, prepping for a game, you have to scout the opposition. You have to make your notes about what, 
your team is going to face that night. So when you're on the other side of the ledger prepping for and viewing the Canucks as an opponent for the last couple of seasons, what were some of the things that you saw from the Canucks? Well, that's a good question. So uh, on paper, they looked like a dangerous team with some of their offensive weapons. And the way that I would see the Kraken specifically go after Vancouver is, you know, frustrate their top guys and then wait to see what happens after that. And there were times where, you know, the Canucks owned the series up until late in the season. And there were times where it just didn't work out. I mean, I think of the first time those two teams ever played, the Canucks were down 2-1 on the third period. And then uh, Connor Garland goal, a bullhorn of that goal. And, and the Canucks ended up winning that game 3-2 in the home opener for the Seattle Kraken. So it looked like the approach that some teams would have last year against the Canucks is stick around because they might self-destruct because they're just trying to, you know, do everything all at once rather than sticking to a system. And then in seeing how Rick Tockett had the team play, the first thing I noticed when the Kraken played the Canucks was their defensive zone and how they were more patient and how guys were, doing what they were supposed to do, only kind of covering the area of the ice that is theirs and not trying to go help somebody else out. And so it seemed like if you want to use the term structure or if you want to use the term um, you know, defensive posture, uh, that was more evident for me at the end of the season for Vancouver. Okay, I'm going to throw you on the spot, but I have confidence in this because I know you have amazing recall. So you mentioned the games against the Kraken last year. There was one in January. It was Rick Tockett's second game in charge. He started with a win, and then the Canucks got the doors blown off them by the Kraken. I think it was 6-1. It was bad, and that was the game. Rather infamously, the Tockett came out afterwards and called his team soft, and he kind of walked it back, but also kind of didn't. What do you remember, if anything in particular, about that game? Because I do remember that being a flashpoint in the early days of the Tockett era. Oh, is that the game where Jared McCann faked the dump in and scored from the blue line? It might have been. I'd have to double check. You've got good recall. Yeah, I, bla- I blacked out mine. that game. Yeah, yeah sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, from from the other side, it was like, okay, you know, the, the the Kraken have something going here. And for Rick Tockett, I think it was uh, a realization that, you know, he's going to have to really get on his team. And, you know, the Cucks, I did a, a kind of a season review for myself. You talk about going through notes and things. And for the amount of times it would get to the third period and they're talking about how the, the, they let the lead slip away or, you know, a costly mistake here or a bad penalty there. And it just seemed like they couldn't get out of their way last year. And the Kraken just, they just wanted to beat the Canucks finally because as I mentioned, the Vancouver had their way. So uh, with Rick Tockett, I mean, the thing about him, so here's the interesting little side note. Like my first game ever in the NHL was in Philadelphia in the spectrum Yikes. against the Flyers and battling with Rick Tockett. I think it took a penalty on me. I think he cross-checked me. I got to talk to him about that. <laughs> but just, you know, he, he's got that intensity um, that players can't question. And so if your coach has got that, if it doesn't rub off on you, then, you know, maybe that's the wrong player to have on the team. Uh, I'd be really interested to see his demeanor with his team throughout training camp. And looking forward to going to Victoria later today and, and getting a chance to, to talk with the coaching staff and, and get their ideas on, you know, if they feel they have to really push the team or if they feel they have to you know, kind of bring them together with some of these team bonding activities and, and you know, pump them up. But uh, he finally has his fingerprints and will from day one. 
And I think he's the right coach at the right time for this organization. DT, when you were playing, um, did you like a coach that was very strict in terms of telling you exactly what to do and how to play? Or did you like a coach that gave you a little bit more freedom? Because that does seem to be like if we're if we're putting coaches in a box, Bruce Boudreaux is the guy that lets you play and Rick Tockett is the guy that gives you a little more clear direction. That's a great question. When I was younger in the NHL, I look back on it and I'm like, where were my coaches? Why didn't anybody tell me what to do? How come I didn't get any direction? Like I, I, when I was in Winnipeg and my wingers were Ty Domi and Chris King, I would have Ty say to me, Hey, give me the puck, give me the puck. And I'd have, you know, my coach say, dump it in. And that's all the, that's all I got. And so I'm like, okay, do I get beaten up by my winger or do I, you know, try to survive another game and throw it in the corner? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think nowadays younger players need that knowledge. They thirst for information. And so I would have preferred to have gotten some Coles notes on what you want from me as a player, as a younger player. Give me five years in the league. Hey, I got this. I'm pretty sure I knew turn the puck over the blue line wasn't the right play. Put me back out there. I'll, I'll, I'll simplify. So there's a curve, I think, for most. I, I'm, I'm generalizing, but for myself as a player, I wanted more coaching when I was younger in the NHL. I welcomed it. It wasn't there. And then after you know my fourth, fifth year pro, eh, I prefer just to listen to you know what he's telling the other guys and pick up what I needed. Uh, DT, a couple things here as we bid you farewell. One, thanks a lot for doing this. We really appreciate it. And two, as Jason mentioned earlier, congrats on the gig, man. We're both super happy for you that you were able to come back and do this. We look very much forward to hearing you on the calls this season. And enjoy it, bud. You've earned it. I appreciate that. And I know where it all kind of started uh, back in the day, and we all kind of seem to have uh, hung around. So I think <laughs> congratulations to you guys to keep your gig going. I do enjoy listening to you guys. Thank you for having me on and getting me on uh, early in the morning here and look forward to being a part of your show throughout the hockey season. I'll finish it up with Go Canucks. Uh, enjoy Victoria, Dave. Thanks, man. See you, buddy. Thank you. Dave Tomlinson, the new Canucks TV analyst right here on Sportsnet. So, Laddie, did you say we got some breaking news here? We certainly do. What is the news? What is the news? Sportsnet 650 breaking news. Brad Marchand, your new captain for the Boston Bruins. They just announced on their social media. They teased oh. it first, though. They did tease it. They put How out a they, pic- they put out a picture of the front of a Boston Bruins jersey, closely cropped, so all you could see was the C. Could you see the shadow of his nose? No, couldn't see that. Okay. Uh, and now there's a video. A little rat ran across the jersey. <laughs> the video. You guys are the worst. Low-hanging fruit, or low-hanging rats, as it were. Uh, yeah, so this is a couple of days in a row now, where we because yesterday we didn't mention it at all, mm-hmm. but Braden Shen, the wily vet at 32 years old, named the new captain in St. Louis. Would have been nice when we had Luke on to ask him, but... Yeah, I know. Why couldn't they time it? You know, actually, I heard uh, Braden's interview shortly thereafter, and yeah, I did not realize. Like, I knew him and Luke were close, right? The brothers, obviously. I did not realize <laughs> just how, like they talk every Got single day. I think, you know, they were almost toying with the notion that like Luke signed in Nashville because they were both in the Central Division, <laughs> like they'd get right. to play each other more. It was kind yeah. of funny, actually. But so Braden Shen, the new captain. In St. Louis, uh, Brad Marchand, as the breaking news, just mentioned the new captain in Boston. I guess this was obvious, right? There was no way that Boston was going to go into this season without a captain. 
Because Marchand was the most logical and obvious guy to wear it after Bergeron. So the teams that are remaining without a captain are the Anaheim Ducks, the Arizona Coyotes, the Calgary Flames, the Chicago Blackhawks, the Philadelphia Flyers, and the Seattle Kraken. I believe Chicago announced yesterday that they are 100% not going to name a captain this well, year. Well, it'll be they're just waiting to name Bedard, right? Like they're, they, uh, there's this guy that he's from here. Hmm. Uh, his name is, uh, I think it's Connor. Yeah, he'd get more attention if he's from Yeah, Connor Bedard. Yeah, I think they're probably just waiting to name him captain, and they'll decide when is the best time to do that. Um, And then the other teams are kind of like, I mean, Calgary's interesting that they haven't named a captain since, well, I guess Gio was there, right? It's been a while. Calgary's been without a captain for a while. I I would be shocked if they named one before the start of the season. I mean, I don't know who Who would it be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Can you give it to Tanev? Tanev's going into the final year of his contract, I mean, too. Maybe if Backlund re-signs, maybe you give it to a guy like Michael Backlund? Give it to Markstrom. Um, give no. it to Markey? Yeah. Uh, I, can, I, I, never like, I never like shooting down ideas without considering him, but on that one, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I did want to mention a couple other things here. I want to whip through some of these NHL stories because there's a lot going on. Training camps are on the horizon. I think everyone's through the preseason golf tournament part of the exercise. Now we're getting into the preseason media availabilities, and soon we will get into who looks good at training camp. All my favorite subjects, year after year. But um, you mentioned Anaheim doesn't have a captain. Anaheim has contract situations of its own. Two of their young players, Trevor Zegers and Jamie Drysdale, remain unsigned as they're ready to go into camp. So there's that. We mentioned in Tampa Bay the Steve Stamkos contract situation, which I'm, I apologize. I was following a lot of sports this offseason, so I neglected and overlooked some NHL stories. I had no idea that Stamkos was heading into the last year of his deal. I also had no idea that he's not happy that he's going into the last year of his contract. I, I think it's mostly just we assumed, yeah, he'll sign. Yeah. But right? Like, they'll find something. You know who else I think assumed that? Steve Stamkos. And now Steve Stamkos is a little irate. We've got audio from today's presser. Here's Steve Stamkos talking about his contract situation in Tampa Bay. To be honest, um, I've been disappointed in, in the lack of of talk in that regard. So... It was something that I expressed at the end of last year that I wanted to get something done before training camp started. Um, there haven't been any conversations. So. Are you willing to talk during the season or wait till after the season? I, I'm ready whenever. So um, I guess that was something that, uh, that I didn't see, see coming, but um, it is what it is. You know, the Lightning operate in a pretty ruthless fashion. They got a little bit of New England Patriots to them. Yeah. And I wonder if they're looking at that situation and going, nobody here is getting like kind of like a thanks for all you've done for us contract. Right. And I know Stamkos is still a good player, but for how long is he going to be a good player? For how long is he going to be a player that's worth giving, I don't know, what, $9 million of the salary cap to? It's a conundrum. He's 30. He's going to be 34 soon. Yeah. God, that makes me feel old. Mm-hmm. I remember when Steve Stamkos was the hot new thing coming into the draft. Yeah, I know. It was the next. He was. I think it's when we started throwing around generational talent really loosely. <laughs> well, he struggled to, out of the gates, right? Like he. But he's he had such a good career. He's had an unbelievable <laughs> such career. A good career. Yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. But do you think? Do you think that that team is looking at the situation and going, like, we can't allow ourselves to commit big money and especially term to a player that's going to be in his mid thirties? Yeah, I do. 
I think it's, I mean, the thing that caught me off guard about the entire thing was that Steve Stamkos was yeah. caught off guard. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are, don't worry, I don't like the golden parachute contracts that guys get at the end of their careers. They can absolutely annihilate teams. It's in part, the one that the Blackhawks gave to Brent Seabrook kind of ruined the back half of that yeah. dynasty. And it really, it kind of tarnished his legacy, to be honest, because a lot of Blackhawks fans turned on him. Yeah, and remembered yeah. him for his contract, which wasn't fair at all. There are exceptions where you have to either like a tip of the cap or a nod to what there's certain special guy like Stamkos. Uh, I don't know, man. The lightning are know. the lightning are already um, sliding a bit, right? They're well, they, they, they're, they're in a weird spot. They're in sure. a weird, but but they could. I mean, Kucherov's only thirty, and then they got guys like Braden Point and Anthony Sorelli who are only uh, you know twenty seven and twenty six respectively. Sergachev. Uh, 25 years old. He's getting. He seems to be getting better and better on the back end. Um, like they can't. They, every dollar means something to them, right? They want to remain competitive. So, are you going to give Stamkos this golden parachute deal, which is a good way to put it, or are you going to say, "Hey, man, listen, like w- you're still a good player, but we're not giving you a five year deal. Uh-huh. We're not giving you a four year deal because that's not how we operate here." We are one of the reasons we've been successful is we have been very, very efficient with our salary cap. Laddie, do you guys remember last time Stamkos had a deal come up? What it uh, involved in? Yeah, well, I remember he did the free agent tour. He did. And Everyone then, assumed Toronto, and yeah. he kind of strung them along. Detroit was somehow in And the then mix. he signed in that five-minute stretch when the P.K. Subban deal happened and the Taylor Hall for yeah, Larson deal happened, right. and everyone just kind of forgot about it. Gosh, that was eight years ago? That this was. makes me feel so old. So Brandon in Vancouver texted in, I think Stammer can be an exception for signing an older player. He's still a star and productive at a high level. I don't think he'd ask for nine mil plus, probably something like the Pavelski deal three by seven. Yeah, I guess we don't know because they haven't had those conversations. By the but way, I wonder if the Lightning are like, we don't want to have the conversation because we might suggest something that Stamkos isn't going to like. Yeah, insulting. Right? <laughs> Here's an insulting offer for you. Yeah. How about we go year to year? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I Also, I want to point out that if the captain of... I mean, it doesn't work now because with the the whole Quinn Hughes being the captain, he's probably not going to come on. I like a new contract, but if this had happened in a in a Canadian market, where on the opening day of training camp or the, on the eve of training camp, yeah, your beloved captain expresses frustration with the fact that he hasn't got a contract done yet and hasn't received an offer, that's all we'd be talking about. Yeah, in Tampa, they're like, "What's going on with Baker Mayfield? We'll yeah. see if I have him for lunch." Yeah, they, they're more concerned about the Mike Evans contract than they are about the Steve Stamkos contract. Really, in Tampa Bay, I mean, that's the reality of that mm. so we're getting uh, a new stadium yeah for got, baseball got lots of other things to talk about in tampa bay but that's going to be an interesting one to monitor because uh, like stamkos is one of my favorite outside of market non-canucks players over the last i mean he's been in the league for forever now for a decade and also i kind of have a special affinity for him because if you want to talk about the guys that got ripped off from international play steve stamkos got ripped off from international play. Yeah. Like, he just never got a chance. Mm-hmm. Repeatedly, I believe. Yeah, well... <laughs> like, always seemed to happen. Well, he... Because he tore up his knee right before uh, the 2010 Olympics, right? And I think he was injured in 2014 as well. I yeah. gotta go back and double-check on those. But that was a guy that... Now, the, I mean, let's be honest. If you're putting together a Team Canada right now, Steve Samkos no. ain't on it. No. It's sad that that chapter's closed. Uh, Nick Shook is gonna join us next for a little NFL talk. 
on the Halford and Brough Show on Sportsnet 650. So that's it after 20 years. So long, good luck. I don't recall saying good luck. The most opinionated Canucks show out there. Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drans. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. on a Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff in the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are in hour two of the program. Nick Shook from NFL.com is going to join us in just a moment here. Hour two of this program is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling. They recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. To the phone lines we go. Nick Shook from NFL, NFL.com joins us now on the Halford & Brough Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, Nick. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you guys doing? Uh, we're good. I'm going to tell you that during the last break, uh, I was scouring our fantasy waiver wire for uh, running back options now that I think all the starting running backs in the NFL are hurt. I can't confirm that, but I think the majority of them are. Even the running backs are like, we probably shouldn't get paid. And the backups are like, I'm probably going to get hurt now too. So (laughs) by at last count, Austin Eckler was out. Saquon Barkley is out. Nick Chubb is done for the year. Aaron Jones out. J.K. Dobbins out. I've lost track, but this is great for waiver wire fodder. But here's a question for you. Are we getting to the point where it might be fair to start asking why anyone would ever want to play running back? Oh, that's actually a pretty good question. Um, you know, it's it's. I think it's a tough call because... I mean, there's there's still a lot of glory to run the football when sure. you're a kid, right? When you're come up in, in you know, Pee Wee, uh, Pop Warner, that type of thing, because kids can't throw the ball more than 10 yards at that time, right? And eventually they're able to, you know, the offenses open up as you get older. But for the most part, it's uh, it's all about the running back when you're young. Now, I grew up in a different era uh, when running backs were still stars. And they are still stars now. It's just not the same because the durability has clearly been proven to just not be there anymore. Um, I... <laughs> I kind of wondered that same thing over the summer. I thought, like, you know, maybe we'll get a bit of a trickle-down effect where when when kids sign up to play football, they're not going to, you know, try to play running back anymore. They're going to play receiver. They want to be quarterback. They mm-hmm. want to be a cornerback, you know, something like that. I mean, it, it's very possible, but uh, I don't think we'll see the, the real results of that for a long time. No, I mean, it's a big-picture thing, but I kind of wanted to use it as a segue to what's happened in Cleveland. Because, like, you're there, you used to work for the Browns, you're uh, you, you understand how important this team is and to the city and this franchise is historically. And the season, I don't want to say it necessarily goes down the drain, but it's a massive blow when you lose a player of Nick Chubb's caliber. And then you look at it from Chubb's perspective, and, like, he's not even 30 yet. I mean, he's, far, he's 27, he's going to turn 28. This is the second catastrophic injury he's had to the same knee in, in between college and now that's an eight year span. So it's a really, really depressing and devastating situation. And it does make you kind of take a look big picture and say, you know, the, the running back position where it's at currently just wonder how gutting this is. And I guess from your perspective, what was it like watching all this unfold for the Browns over the last 48 hours? There was a poll over the city on Monday night, Tuesday. I do like an hour show uh, here locally and, and trying to get around that was really difficult. You could break down the rest of the game, but 
you couldn't get past the fact both in in reviewing the game and looking forward without acknowledging and and being kind of just depressed by the fact that Nick Chubb's not playing. He's not going to be able to play. And that he suffered such a significant injury, like you said, not the first one of his uh, his career. I mean, we I think most of us who follow college football will remember that injury that he suffered when he was at Georgia. Mm. The fact that he was able to make it back. One of the big reasons that he fell to the second round when the Browns were able to pick him is because of that knee injury. Now, he came back you know, and, and was a solid, very good running back in Georgia from there. But he also had guys like DeAndre Swift in that backfield. Um, uh, Sony Michelle was back there as well. And uh, so, you know, it, it, it was kind of fair to be like, well, the longevity might not be there. And then you fast forward all the way to here, and he's about to be 28 years old, and he's the best running back in the league or one of the best running backs in the league. Mm-hmm. And to see him go down, it's the guy that you don't want to see get hurt. You don't want to see anybody get hurt, right? But nobody probably deserves to get hurt less than Nick Chubb. He's, he's a, a confident professional. He's a fantastic teammate. He does not speak up a lot because he's just a quiet guy. But when he – you know, that would make him seem standoffish. But he, when he actually – when he lets you into, you know – kind of his circle of sorts and opens up to you a little bit when you're able to crack him. He's actually a really funny guy and he's a really nice, you know, he's just a good dude. Like he's a good dude who works as hard as any player in football and is damn good at it and never causes any stink, just goes out there and does his job really well. And uh, it can always be counted on to show up and be the hardest worker in the room. So to see him get hurt on what is an unfortunate, you know, play, you know, the fact that, he kind of got high load on that tackle on the goal line because they're just trying to get him yeah. down after he was running right through him. It's just it's a big bummer. So, uh, and and you're right. You look at that and you think, well, this is this guy's an elite player, and you know what? Why would I? You know what? Why would I want to try to follow in his footsteps when I see all these guys just fall off the cliff after four, five, six, seven years? I felt like Nick Chubb was going to be the guy that would that would prove that trend wrong. And now, you know, I don't know the second significant knee injury. If there's anybody that can come back from it, it's him. But it's going to be tough. Not to go exclusively Cleveland Browns in this hit, but I do want to ask how concerned how concerned is or should this franchise be with the way Deshaun Watson's playing football right now? I think Monday night was probably your first legitimate cause for concern because right. uh, week one you could have blamed it on the weather, you couldn't blame it on anything week two except for maybe the loss of Nick Chubb. Uh, it, the, the balance offensively wasn't there, but. I had issues with play calling in certain situations. I had issues with Deshaun Watson, you know, sensing the rush too soon, pulling his eyes down, bailing out of the pocket. Other times not sensing the rush quick enough, uh, not being fast enough through his progression, just missing guys that were open from clean pockets. Uh, it just doesn't look good right now. There's, there's glimpses of good. There are glimpses of good, but there's way too much bad right now with him. How screwed are the Browns with that contract if he's not going to pan out? It doesn't look good. Uh, <laughs> they kind of they kind of need that to work out because if I have to think about what the, off the top of my head what the contract details are, but it, the the dead cap money is is pretty is pretty high. Like unlike the Kyler Murray contract, which they can get out of after a couple of years, the dead cap money on Deshaun Watson is incredibly high. All right, so now that I've pulled it up, like if, for example, this is an astronomical value. If they were to cut him after June first next year. The dead cap money would be one hundred and fifty-five million dollars, which I don't think I've ever seen. If they traded him, he would only be okay. That's actually doable. Seventeen point nine million in dead cap, which they they would be able to carry that actually. So 
they're not completely screwed if they wanted to deal him, but they're never going to get the return on investment if they had to deal him. Yeah, is he tradable though? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I, I I don't know. Josh Dobbs is tradable, and so maybe, <laughs> but like I I don't know. That's at this point right now because you have to the there would have to be some sort of agreement where the Browns need the vast majority of that salary to be able to make something like that work. But I also think that that's very, very far down the road considering it's week two. I'm just, I'm pretty certain that quarterback and coach are not a good fit. And mm. I am concerned that it's going to become quite apparent by the end of the season. Well, let's stick in the AFC North. How concerned are Bengals fans right now? 0-2, last in the division. Uh, I know they did this last season, but it's, you know, you can't just say, well... <laughs> They got out of the hole last season, so they'll definitely do it again this season. Last season, their quarterback wasn't dealing with a nagging calf injury, um, and I think that's probably the biggest difference. The The fashion in which they lost those games last year was not the same as this year, especially the fact that they got held three points uh, you know, on, on kickoff weekend in Cleveland. That, that doesn't help. That definitely does not uh, help the confidence there in Cincinnati. I... Don't think it's as bad, though, as we probably interpret it to be at this point. And the reason is, is, is they went about six quarters without doing a damn thing on offense. I mean, I mean, nothing on offense. And the second half against Baltimore was a different story. They started to unlock, you know, their passing game. The running game's still not there, which is weird because they do rip off occasional runs of eight, ten yards with Joe Mixon, and they just don't go back to them anymore. But... Joe Burrow was starting to figure things out and settle in. I think he might be lacking a little mobility because of the calf. Uh, it's not I, – I don't have examples that I could necessarily prove that, but that's an element of their offense that is missing this year, and you know, it was part of what made them so difficult to defend last year. So, you know, they went short passes in the second half. There was a lot of things and done sort of deep digs and, and connecting with T. Higgins over and over again and trying to force it to Jamar Chase and getting that offense going. And they finally – you know, threw a couple touchdown passes. So I think that they're on the right track. It's just, man, talk about sleepwalking out of the gate for the first six quarters of, of the NFL season. They're not the only team. The New York Giants also did that. But unlike the New York Giants, or unlike the Cincinnati Bengals, the New York Giants are are uh, one and one at this point. Now. Yeah. Well, so are the New York Jets. Um, and I know this question has been asked of pretty much everyone. Like, Do you think they're going to do anything at the quarterback position? Are they going to bring in someone uh, or are they just going to go, all right, we're going to go with the kid for better or worse? Well, you talked about, you know, there's basically no running backs available, right? What about quarterback? There's no <laughs> quarterbacks available either. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, it's, I, I, I've long said it is, you can't, this is not Madden. You cannot just sign a quarterback, plug him and play him. But you can find ways to make it work fairly quickly. It just, is any option out there better than the idea of, trying to get Zach Wilson, you know, a full year of reps and, and develop him maybe. I don't know. I mean, the way I look at the market right now, you, you heard everybody discuss this last week. There's, there's some capable veterans out there, but it's not like, it's not like running back where, you know, this summer we had a trail or a, a quartet of guys who were proven veterans who you knew you could sign and give, you know, 10, 15 carries a game. And they'd make a difference for, you, you know, the Kareem hunts, the, the Melvin Gordons, Ezekiel Elliott's, those types of guys, um, they're not, they don't really exist at quarterback. And mm. I think that's the biggest issue. That and because the quarterback has so much more on their plate that the Jets might be stuck with what they have unless they get so desperate that they have to swing a deal for a guy. 
uh, a backup quarterback, maybe a Gardner Minshew, but he's looking like he's going to potentially play this weekend for the Colts as well after, you know, Anthony Richardson suffered a concussion. So the backup quarterback remains extremely important. And I think we learned that with the Browns last year, even though they finished seven and 10, uh, Jacoby Brissett played a big part. Uh, the Jets certainly learned that last year with all the quarterbacks they had to go through uh, to get to the season last year. So it's, um, it's tough, man. It, I'm not a huge fan of trying to make a change at quarterback in the middle of the season because it reeks of desperation. But the, and I don't think Zach Wilson was necessarily horrible. The stats say he was horrible. But a lot of that game was, you know, his big mistakes were made when it was already kind of out of hand against Dallas. Um, but it just depends. Do we get to week eight and the Jets have two wins in their name or something like that? I think the defense is going to keep him in every game, and I think it's going to lessen the blow of, Mm-hmm. of Zach Wilson's struggles. Uh, it's just a matter of how desperate do they get by the time we get to the deadline. It might make it even more frustrating, though, that they've got this great defense. And especially yeah. if he makes mistakes, you're kind of like, dude, you're killing us here. But, like, can't it? Does he have the, last year. Yeah, does he have the ability to just manage a game? I, I don't know. Like, people think that's easy. It's not. It's not. It's not easy. Um, it's. I just keep thinking about the replay that I watched in the game last night because I think he looks better than he did last year. He, there are small signs of growth, and his internal clock is not as slow as it was. I kind of need to see it in the vacuum, really, to be honest. I, mean, I, need, I need to see it against a team that doesn't have Michael Parsons coming after him because what you're going to get as a Jets offense, and especially in passing situations, is unbridled aggression from every opposing defense you face this year. Uh, because they know that you have Zach Wilson behind the line of scrimmage. Like, it's like the Steelers in the final moments of the game against the Browns on Monday night. They're like, Deshaun can't see the blitz, so we're just going to keep sending the blitz. It, it, sometimes it just becomes painfully obvious what you need to do to force turnovers in, in key spots. And when you don't have a quarterback that's capable, you know, who's like Teflon in those situations, then it becomes a weakness. It becomes frustrating. But I feel like he is a little bit better. He did create with his legs um, just before halftime against the Cowboys. He had that throw to Garrett Wilson, which was actually a pretty good throw. It was unlike the Kenny Pickett touchdown pass to George Pickens. It was actually required a good throw to uh, to end up being a long touchdown, which is what Wilson did on Sunday. It's just he's so far away from still from where you need him to be to go chase a title with a defense like that. But again, they'll be in every game. So, you know, it, there's talk. <laughs> uh, it's the 49ers and the Giants tomorrow on Thursday night football. Uh, the 49ers, not surprisingly, are pretty big favorites. I think they're 10-point favorites over the Giants. Um, the three favorites in the NFC, Dallas, Philly, and San Francisco, they're all 2-0, and so they're all off to good starts. Um, of those three, is there any separation for you? Uh, I... I, I mean, can we start with the Giants? I mean, we can start I, with the Giants if you want it, to talk about the Giants. Sure. <laughs> no, run that run that trio back for me again. Sorry. Uh, okay, so of the three favorites in the NFC, I think San Francisco, Dallas, and the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, do you like any one of them better than the other? Like, is there any separation between the three of them, or do you think they're all pretty evenly oh, matched? Yeah. You can fake phone reception for cutting some of that out. Um, I got it this time around, and it is the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, I I hate to sound like somebody who's probably jumping on a bandwagon, but um, we are through two weeks, and they look more prepared for a regular season and for a title chase than any team I've seen in the NFL on that side of the docket, I think. On that side of between the conferences, it's got to be the San Francisco 49ers. Um, Their defense is very good. Their defense has been very good without Nick Bosa 
playing the majority of snaps. Brock Purdy is great. I think he's awesome. He's comfortable. He's collected. He's just a cool cat in the pocket who executes this offense exactly how Kyle Shanahan wants it to be executed. They have Brandon Ayuk's going to have a career year. At least he's on pace to do that so far. He just looks very, very like a different guy. Um, all the training camp reports were true or whatever that you know he was supposed to be looking like a different player this year. It's it's coming to fruition so far. I, they just look like a complete team. Uh, the Eagles are still trying to figure out how to get their offense to work. Their defense has been kind of up and down. They have a lot of yards in the second half of Minnesota last week. And Dallas looks really good too, but I have that bit of just concern in my head where I'm like, hey, what's going to happen when they get to the divisional round? You know, Are they going to be healthy enough to get there? They, they don't get over the hump of those games. So if I had to choose between the three, I'm definitely picking favorites. Like I'm, I'm as confident in the 49ers after two weeks as I was in the 2016 Atlanta Falcons by week nine or eight of that season, that they're just a really good football team. And there's one common figure in both of those teams is Kyle Shanahan. Uh, I want to stick in the NFC. I want to look at some of these two and O teams, specifically the Washington commanders, the Atlanta Falcons, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the new Orleans saints. I don't think anyone expected these teams to be a collective eight. No through two weeks, but they are the, the, the negative, the pessimist would say, which one of these is a fraud or all they all, all frauds. The optimist would say, which is the most pleasant surprise of the bunch. And you can take this in any direction you want, but realistically, who's most surprising to be at two and O is it the commanders, the Falcons, the bucks or the saints. That's tough. Um, I like Sam Howe. I was wrong about Sam Howe, and the Commanders are a fun watch. So uh, it's not them. That I think that they, even if they build themselves a big deficit uh, and make it difficult, I, I like their chances in most settings just because their quarterback was the biggest question mark, and he's been playing good football so far. The Falcons should probably be one and one uh, Green Bay did a great job of kind of giving them that game or giving them the opportunity to come back in that game. But B. John Robinson's really fun to watch. Desmond Ritter impressed me in that game. He made a lot of throws in the second half that I didn't know he was capable of making. Hooking up with Drake London, guys like that, uh, they're starting to come around. But I still don't have a ton of faith in that offense unless Arthur Smith gets as creative as he did out of necessity in that game. I think if I have to pick anyone, I don't know. The Saints, it's tough because they haven't played four quarters of football, like quality football yet. They played two good second half. That's it. <laughs> and then the other, you know, two first halves that they played were terrible. And they've managed to play Carolina and uh, and Tennessee, two teams that they can get away with playing like that against. And the Buccaneers, I'm waiting for them to play a good defense because yeah. they played Minnesota, who I thought was going to take a step back and has visibly taken a step back in two weeks. And then they played Chicago, who – Sorry, everyone who was on the hype train with them this year, they still have a long way to go. Tampa has not been tested yet. So, I mean, but Baker Mayfield's playing good football. So, I, Thursday night, or no, Monday night, sorry, was the first time that I thought about Derek Carr and, and was like, oh, maybe I am just finally wrong and he's not good enough to, to lead any team to the playoffs anymore. And then they woke up in the second half. I'm, so, I'm still really close, but I'm kind of falling on the, the dark side of that fence there with Derek Carr. But Baker Mayfield, I know what he can and can't do, and I, and I, you know, the 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 wins that they've recorded, like they probably shouldn't have won that game in Minnesota. And Minnesota's not going to be a football team. So if I had to pick all those four teams, God, this is crazy. It's just a weird division, you know, picking three of those four. Ed, it's got to be Tampa, man. It's got, Tampa's got to be the biggest yeah. fraud of all of them because they still have talent, but I just don't trust it. I don't trust that 
in a big moment against a good team that Baker Mayfield's going to find the same success that he's found uh, with them so far. Derek Carr is a guy like I want to like. Like I, I do like him. I like his personality. I think he's got tons of talent. He can. He's got great arm talent. He can throw. But every time I watch him, it's like, yeah, it's not happening for me right now. And it definitely didn't happen on Thursday night football. Or sorry, Monday night football. That was not a pleasant watch. That game. The the uh, the Browns and Steelers game was much more entertaining. Anyway, Nick, we're up against it for time. We got to go. Thank you as always for joining us. Great insight. Enjoy tomorrow night's game. Enjoy Sunday's game. We'll do this again real soon. Yep, fingers crossed Derek Carr puts together four good quarters and we don't have to worry about that next week. Yeah, all <laughs> Thanks, right. Guys. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. That's Nick Shook from NFL.com here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Coming up on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650, Cat uh, Jamie and Asia Youngman are going to be joining us. They are the co-directors of the new sports documentary. You know how we love our sports documentaries here. This is a 30 for 30 ESPN Films presents I'm Just Here for the Riot, which is about, of course, the 2011... Stanley Cup riot, the aftermath, the first ever quote unquote smartphone riot. And I got a lot of questions that I, we've had Kat and um, Asia on the show before Mm -hmm. talking about, I think it was in the early stages of production, actually, if I'm not mistaken. So they just finished up putting the final touches on it in April. That was the most recent press release that came out. So they're not going to give away the entirety of the film. As a matter of fact, the reason they're coming on is because. Uh, the doc is going to be showed twice at the upcoming Vancouver International Film Festival. So, so yes, so, go ahead. So, I don't, I don't know how I want to tell this to Cat and Cat in Asia, but like, I don't know if I want to see this because. Oh, don't say it like that. No, no, no. Just listen. Just listen. I'm sure they what understand. What a sale! No, I'm sure they understand it. Like, we had him on the me, line. And they just hung up. No. For me, there's a reason why they. The reason why you cho- you choose a subject like this, like pretty emotionally charged subject. Yeah, right? you're scarred by it still. This was well, scarred is a little dramatic, but like, I I was really really embarrassed by the Stanley Cup riot, mm-hmm. and and part of it was that you and I right after that happened, we took a new job and we had to go down and introduce ourselves to lots of people down in, you know, Eastern United States. And, you know, like, hi, we're Mike and Jason. Uh, we're from Vancouver. We're, you know, and they're, and they're like, oh, Vancouver, uh, you guys just had that riot. And I was like, you know, I'm generally pretty proud of being from Vancouver. I've lived here my whole life, um, I realize there are challenges to this city. It's a super expensive city to live in. I realize there are issues in this city. But, like, generally, when I tell people, you know, I'm from Vancouver, they're like, oh, what a beautiful city. You know, I went to Van- – or I'd love to go to Vancouver. When that riot happened and we were on the news around the world and people were talking about us and going, like, over ho- – it was a hockey riot? Yeah. I was annoyed, and you and I were, of course, at the game, at Game 7, so not only were we upset that the Canucks, you know, didn't win the Stanley Cup, a lot of the fan base outside were acting like complete idiots, and people were saying, oh, they're not real Canucks fans. Yeah, they were. <laughs> so They were. What? And I was, I, was, I was angry. Like, I was, I was angry at um, the mayor. I was angry at all the people that had invited all these people downtown and obviously there were not enough uh there were not enough they they, they just invited all these people and they didn't have control over them and I was angry about it but also at the same time 
as the as the news stories um, evolved, right, and and people were identified, and the young people were identified, I had this kind of like also feeling like. <sighs> As angry as I was at the riot, and I was kind of like, I want someone to pay for this. I was like, part of me was like, you know, I kind of feel sorry for some of these people that got caught up in this riot. And now, like, they're going to wear this for the rest of their lives. So I'm glad you brought this angle up because there are some people, believe it or not, that want nothing to do with reliving, relitigating, and retelling this dark moment. And I want to ask Kat and Asia... How difficult was it to get some people to talk on camera when you were pitching the idea? Because I've heard anecdotally that there were some outlets that didn't have any interest in having a documentary. Well, there's about a lot the of people. 2011 Vancouver riots, right? There's a reason that this ended up going to ESPN and mm -hmm. 30 for 30. And, you know, so I want to ask about that because sometimes, sometimes uh, it's not always the popular or best idea. It's the tough or the difficult idea that mm -hmm. produces really great work, right? It's not I'm on, doing I'm in that the camp, easy thing, I agree. Right? I think it's a great idea for a documentary. Well, it is a, it is a great idea for subject, a documentary yeah. because it, it stirs like, up I, emotion, I get right? why people would yeah. not want to see it because of what you just said, Bruff, but I mean, I, like what Halford just said, the tougher the subject can sometimes make the more compelling moments, right, as you dive deeper into Look, it. Look, a lot of the sports documentaries, that, especially with 30 for 30s and the rise of them is – the heroic narrative or the redemptive arc or the underdog wins in the end, right? Very classic Disney-esque cliches that play out in a fashion that we're familiar with. There's no bright spot at the end of a riot. There's yeah. no, there, there, it's, it's a messy thing. The people that are weighing in right now, and I've seen this, all right, we don't want any part of this. I get it, though. I get it. But that's fine. But that doesn't mean... That your instinctive reaction of, I don't want any part of this, should dictate your subsequent actions. Mm -hmm. Like, just because your gut reaction is, I don't want to relive that, maybe you should. Maybe that's part well, of it. Maybe, city, the maybe, the visceral, maybe the visceral reaction of, I don't want to think about this, is the exact reason why you should think about it. So, we'll talk to the two directors, Kat Jamie and Asia Youngman, coming up next on the Halford & Brough Show on Sportsnet 650.